Welcome to the February 2011 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications and External Relations. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Melissa Neller. And this month we'll learn about a promising method of creating adult stem cells, which could prove useful for tissue engineering. But first we'll explore the powerful placebo effect. On a recent snowy morning, I sat down with Ted Kopchuk in his home office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Kopchuk is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Over a cup of Chinese tea, I learned that he will be directing a brand new Harvard-wide program in placebo studies and therapeutic encounters. Here's an excerpt from our interview. Could you start off by, in very broad strokes, painting a picture for people of what is placebo and what is the placebo effect? Sure. Placebo effects are the self-healing capacities embedded in the ritual of medicine, the patient-physician relationship, and the power of imagination, will, and belief. It's the stuff that has to do with the art of medicine as opposed to the technological interventions of medications, procedures, and surgery. So when I hear the word placebo, I think of a sugar pill or a dummy pill that doctors prescribe to a group of patients in a clinical trial so that they have a control to compare against. But you're saying that the sugar pill is only one aspect of placebo. It's the paraphernalia. The idea of a placebo effect really comes out of the randomized control trial, which developed after World War II. Scientists were using placebos as a control for the active intervention being tested, and people started getting better in the placebo arm. That's the classic understanding of placebo. But in my sense of what I call placebo effects, I'm including positive affect, empathy, warmth, compassion, thoughtful silence, the diploma on the wall, the stethoscope. I'm including all the rituals that's embedded in the doctor-patient relationship. So I have a very broad sense of placebo. My job is to find out what is this effect and try to rigorously assess first what is its magnitude, what is its duration, how can it be manipulated, what are the ethical boundaries for harnessing it in clinical practice. Those are questions that I'm engaged in. Let's talk just a little bit about the pharmaceutical industry's interest in your research. The pharmaceutical industry, their primary interest in placebo effects, which is very great interest, is how do they reduce the placebo effect in order to show a difference between the drug of intervention and the placebo So actually, let's turn to this recent study that you just did. This was a study that involved, I believe, approximately 80 patients who had irritable bowel syndrome. Let me tell you our goal in that study. As a placebo researcher, there's a real problem. There's been a widespread belief that you can only get a placebo effect if you lie to a patient, deceive the patient, conceal. You know, put them in a double-blind trial. You may get a drug, you may not. I raised the question, how do we know this is true? Can you just lay out what the study was? Sure. Maybe kind of the steps. Of- the recent study we published in PLOS One was really a very simple, almost primitive study. We advertised to irritable bowel patients that we wanted to test a novel mind-body experiment. People called. Our screener said, did you ever hear the placebo effect? And people said, yes. So right up front. Right up front. It was so clear. It was you know very dramatic. We told all the patients about what the study was, explained that you'd get the placebo pill or you would get no treatment. If you got placebo pill, that would be important. If you got no treatment, that was very important for scientific reasons, develop new therapies for people with irritable bowel syndrome. All the patients received the exact same doctor-patient relationship. What do you mean by that? How were you able to control that? First of all, we scripted the interview. But 
both groups had the exact same intervention except for the last moment. So they didn't know which group they would be in during that conversation. Right. At the last moment, the envelope was opened and the GI doc or the nurse practitioner said, oh, you're going to get the placebo. Here's a bottle of pills that said placebo. And we said, you have to take it twice a day. Or you open the envelope and said, oh, you're in the control arm. So after that first visit where they encountered either a physician or a nurse practitioner and they had this conversation and at the end they open the envelope, they discover whether they're going to be taking the placebo pills twice a day for three weeks? Is that yeah, right? it's only three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah, um, or whether they're just going to be coming in for follow-up visits without taking any placebo pills. What are the next steps? After the trial was over and we analyzed the data, we didn't believe it. People who took the placebo had an improvement rate of 62% reported adequate relief in the last seven days. That's huge for aerial valve. And people in the no treatment reported 35% improvement, which is normal for regression to the mean and spontaneous remission. So there's almost double the amount of improvement in the treated with placebo arm. When you said you had trouble believing the results... But yet you were the person who asked the question, is deception really necessary to see an effect? Were you just surprised at the size of the results? Yeah, or? yeah it was. And you have to remember, one of my teachers was Louis Lasagna, one of the pioneers in placebo studies from the 50s. And Louis would tell me, Ted, this placebo is much less than what people say. If you give 100 people who have bad colds sugar pill and tell them to come back in two weeks, they're 100% better. Is that the placebo effect? So one of my major mentors said, Ted, don't believe anything until you really have a lot of evidence. So it's a very small study. It's 80 people. It's a very short duration, three weeks. At best, it's a proof of concept. Can you talk about why you chose irritable bowel syndrome and and where placebo often shows a stronger effect? Yeah. For this experiment and many of our experiments, we deliberately pick illnesses that are dependent on patient self-report, self-appraisal. I would never invest money in trying to shrink a tumor with a sugar pill. This is a symbol that we're giving people. It's a ritual. That's not going to change pathophysiology in any obvious way that I can understand. But will it initiate the activation of neurochemicals that are known to modulate pain in the human body, to modulate nausea? That's really possible. In fact, the scientific evidence is that symbolic interventions of medicine activate endorphins or dopamine, serotonin. So I would pick illnesses that are quote, subjective, but are really important illnesses in medicine. This is wonderful. Thank Thank you you so so much much. for inviting me to do this. Medical history is rife with diseases so horrific that they give every medical student nightmares. Take fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, or for the Latin challenged, FOP. In patients with this rare genetic disease, trauma causes soft tissue, such as muscle, to turn into bone. Over time, it's as if FOP patients had stumbled across the mythical Greek monster Medusa, whose terrifying face turned onlookers to stone. There's no cure or treatment for this slow transformation. But sometimes disease can be a teacher. In the process of studying the genetic roots of FOP, Bjorn Olsen, HMS professor of cell biology, and HMS instructor of medicine, Damien Medici, discovered a new way to create adult stem cells. When they took a normal endothelial cell from inside of a blood vessel and activated the mutation that causes FOP, something strange happened. The blood vessel cell essentially lost its identity, morphing into an unspecialized cell capable of generating cartilage, bone, fat, and perhaps even other types of cells. 
In other words, FOP provides a genetic time machine in which a mature cell can journey back into childhood, back to a time when its career options were still open. According to Medici, this may have clinical applications. Obviously, tissue engineering for personalized medicine, where you can just take a mature vascular endothelial cell, say from a patient, you know, you can get it from skin, take those, isolate those cells, grow them up in culture, and then turn them into whatever you want to turn them into. It's conceivable that transplant patients may one day benefit from Medici and Olson's serendipitous discovery. Scientists may succeed in using a horrible disease's secret to do some good. This concludes the February episode. We'll leave you with a quote from Hippocrates. Healing is a matter of time, but it is sometimes also a matter of opportunity. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications and External Relations, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit hms.harvard.edu.